This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Tom Barrett, the founder of investment firm Colony Capital, was a friend and confidant of former President Trump, advising him on everything from cabinet appointments to foreign policy, something he discussed in an exclusive interview with Bloomberg a little over a week ago. From my simple beginnings of where I came to have the gift and the opportunity to be next to a president of the United States, to have the honor of running an inauguration, to be up close and personal on some issues um, that affect world order. Now, federal prosecutors allege that Barrick was too up close and personal on issues affecting world order, specifically affecting the United Arab Emirates. Barrick was arrested this week on charges of illegal lobbying for a foreign government, an allegation prosecutors have successfully brought against several other Trump associates, in addition to charges of obstruction of justice and lying to the FBI. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. So, Jimmy, are these charges serious? They are serious charges. I mean, Tom Barrick is charged with seven counts, including failing to file as, as a foreign agent, conspiracy to act as an unregistered agent, obstruction of justice, specifically involving obstructing a federal grand jury investigation, and then four counts of making material false statements to a federal agent, specifically FBI agents. They are serious charges. I mean, the obstruction of justice charge alone carries a maximum 20-year sentence of, of imprisonment. This is what's called a speaking indictment because it provides so much detail. Did some of the incidents charged stand out to you as particularly egregious? Well, the ones I think that are the most troublesome is where Barrick is actually attempting to influence presidential appointments. You know, for example, the U.S. ambassador to the UAE and where... He's been asked by members of the UAE government to get information, inside information, on who the Trump administration is considering for key high-level government posts, such as the Secretary of State, the Director of the CIA, and some other high-level officials. And so what that demonstrates is that Barrick is actually acting, again, on behalf of the foreign government but is not being transparent. And so, you know, he has this very close relationship with former President Trump, a relationship that he's maintained over, I think, approximately 30 years. He served as an informal advisor to then presidential candidate Trump, president-elect Trump, and then even as president. And so the conflict here is, is he giving the former president advice that's in the best interest of the U.S. government, or again, is he giving advice for the benefit of the UAE? Barrick isn't the first of Trump's allies to be charged with violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA. But I don't remember many high-profile indictments under FARA before this. Was this not enforced much? 
Well, it's infrequently used. I mean, so it's not a federal charge that we see brought on a regular basis. I mean, it carries a five-year sentence of incarceration. So it is a felony. There's no question about it. But often this type of matter might be handled behind the scenes. There might be um, efforts made, you know, there's a problem here. Oh, you know, I'm being investigated. Yeah, let me go register. But here, what ends up happening is not only does Barrick not register as a foreign agent, even though he's acting on behalf of the UAE, but then he lies, at least the indictment alleges that he lies to the FBI about the relationship that he has with the UAE and the efforts that he's undertaken on behalf of the UAE. And he does so, as alleged in the indictment, multiple times. And being a former federal prosecutor, you know that when the FBI is asking those questions, usually they're at the point where they have Uh, the answers and they just want to know if you're telling them the truth. That's what's really, I think, kind of mind-boggling here. Because clearly he had to know, or there was just this this inflated sense of arrogance and that I'm smarter than the FBI. You know, for him, first of all, to agree to sit down and talk to the FBI, and then to respond to these specific questions that he was being asked by the FBI and to deny his involvement in these activities. And you're right, he should have known that the FBI had the answers to these questions. Probably the more prudent course for him to have taken would have been to refuse the invitation to be interviewed by the FBI, but he didn't. In an interview taped last week with Bloomberg TV, Barrick gave no indication that he was aware of the impending charges. Would this have been something that that the FBI might have or prosecutors might have told him about, that an indictment was coming? Well, certainly he would have been put on notice, I think, based upon the... um the interviews that he had with the FBI, because they clearly, again, as alleged in uh, counts four through seven of the indictment, they asked him specific questions. He was asked specific questions by FBI agents regarding his uh, relationship with uh, UAE uh, officials, and more specifically, activities, specific activities undertaken on behalf of UAE government officials. For example, he was asked whether a uh, Emirati official had asked him to download a messaging application to communicate directly with uh, these foreign government officials and to acquire a dedicated telephone to communicate directly with UAE government officials. I mean, so here he's being asked specific questions involving the nature of his relationship and activities with UAE government officials. That clearly should have raised some red flags for Barrick that would cause him to, to, again, to know that he's under investigation. Now, whether or not he knew that the investigation was so far along that an indictment was imminent or an indictment would be shortly forthcoming, you know, that's a different question. But he certainly knew that he was being investigated by the FBI. Does it seem like prosecutors have built a strong case against Barrick? It's incumbent that the FBI and the DOJ have a very strong compelling case, strong, credible evidence to convict. And what I find interesting about this indictment is it doesn't depend on 
percipient witnesses. It doesn't depend on, oh, we've got somebody over here and we're going to get this guy to flip and we're going to make promises that we'll dismiss charges if he cooperates and testifies. That's not this case. And of course, those types of witnesses, their credibility is always highly suspect. This is largely a document-based case based upon text messages and other types of communications that they've been able to download and here the prosecutors detail multiple communications between Barrick and UAE government officials. It's extensive. And they have quotes, exact language that he used that clearly establishes and proves that he was acting on behalf of this foreign government with respect to promoting their interests promoting the foreign government interest with the Trump administration. So it'll be difficult to see what legal defense they raise in an effort to overcome what what appears to be a, a very compelling case, at least on paper. Is there a chance of Barrick flipping? The Eastern District of New York, which brought these charges, is also investigating fraud in the Trump inaugural campaign, and Barrick was chairman of the inaugural committee. I mean, it's it's certainly possible. I think the equation here, the calculation, I should say, that Barrick's going to undertake is what's the likelihood of conviction? Second, if I'm convicted, what kind of sentence am I realistically looking to receive? And if ultimately he concludes that, yeah, I mean, if I'm convicted and I have no prior conviction, I haven't been involved in any criminal activity, and therefore, based upon the sentencing guidelines, the sentence is going to be, you know, five years, three years, two years, whatever it might be, relatively a short sentence, that may not be enough pressure. That may not be enough leverage exerted by the Department of Justice to cause him to cooperate and share information that could implicate former President Trump and maybe other allies of of former President Trump. Thanks for being on the show, Jimmy. That's Professor Jimmy Garule of Notre Dame Law School. The June heat wave in the Northwest shattered temperature records and caused the deaths of hundreds of people. More people die of extreme heat in the U.S. each year than from other natural disasters. But FEMA devotes very little of its resources to deal with extreme heat. Columbia Law School professor Michael Girard, faculty director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, says FEMA has the authority under a 2018 law to do more in advance to lower heat-related deaths. He's written a piece for Bloomberg Law, and he joins me now. So to get an idea of just how hot it's been, tell us about July 9th in Death Valley, California. We're seeing world records being set about heat. It was 130 degrees Fahrenheit on July 9th, which seems to be the world record for heat. And we're seeing uh, temperatures in the 120s in various parts of the world, which had previously been almost unheard of. I think a lot of people, when they think of heat waves, they don't think of heat waves as causing a lot of deaths compared to tornadoes and hurricanes and floods. But that's just not right, is it? That's right. The National Weather Service counts up the number of people who die every year from natural disasters. And heat is by far the leading cause of death, heat waves, far ahead of floods or tornadoes or hurricanes. A lot of people die. And these numbers are probably underreported because many people have heart attacks and so forth that aren't directly attributed to heat. How much does FEMA do? How much time and resources does it devote to heat waves? 
Right now, FEMA does almost nothing on heat waves. They basically have concentrated on declared emergencies and disasters, and there haven't been any about heat waves. Part of the issue is that the conventional kinds of disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods cause a lot of physical damage. Heat waves don't cause so much physical damage, so after they're over, they don't require uh, a lot of uh, that recovery, but they kill a lot of people, and so far, FEMA has not really paid much attention to them. Is that because the real way to battle heat waves would be environmental changes? Well, in the long term, we need to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions in order to reduce the heat waves. But that's going to to take a very long time, and that's not FEMA's job. But there are lots of things that FEMA could help with in the short term that would help people cope with heat waves and would greatly reduce the death toll. One of the things you suggest in your article is cooling centers. That's right. Some cities have set up centers in, in convention halls or school auditoriums or lots of other buildings that are air-conditioned, and people can just go and hang out when it's very hot. We're seeing temperatures that basically are almost impossible to endure if you don't have air conditioning. Lots of people don't have air conditioning or it breaks down. So these are centers where people can just go and and be cool and drink water and so forth. So we have some of those around the country that is kind of sporadic. They're often not well publicized. People have difficulty getting there very often. And so that's something that is similar to the emergency shelters we see after flooding and that kind of thing, something where FEMA could could help out a great deal. So would FEMA be constructing new centers? No, you don't have to build anything. These are all existing uh, buildings. It's mostly a matter of organization and publicizing it and arranging um, transportation and maybe some supplies like cots and so forth, but uh, no new construction would be involved. So it seems pretty easy. So why wouldn't FEMA be doing this already? Well, FEMA didn't used to have the authority to do a lot of work in advance of disasters. Their focus has been emergency response and then, then the aftermath. But in 2018, Congress amended the law and provided for a new program for preparing for emergencies. And I'm arguing that FEMA ought to devote a chunk of the money under that new program to preparing for heat waves. Do you have backing behind you? Are there any other groups that are calling for this? We haven't heard a lot of calls yet, but we're trying to get the word out. And I've been in communication with FEMA about this, and I know they're looking at it. You suggest some other simple things that FEMA can do to lower heat-related death tolls, like just painting roofs white. That's right. One of the big issues we have is called the urban heat island effect. It tends to be much hotter in cities than in the countryside, and that's largely because so much of the surface is covered with buildings and pavement and sidewalks and so forth. If you paint the roofs of buildings white, that makes it cooler overall, particularly inside the buildings. If you grow a lot more trees, if you have a lot more vegetation, that can make a very substantial difference. We also see racial disparities here. It's been shown that the uh, communities that are low income or high proportion of people of color tend to be hotter in the summer because they have more asphalt and fewer trees. That's something that can be fixed. And in the scheme of things, it's not that expensive. Why aren't local communities doing this themselves? 
Well, some local communities are. New York City has something called the Million Trees Campaign uh, to plant a million trees, and they've now exceeded that. A number of other cities have done it, but not nearly as many have done it. And there's no organized national effort to try to reduce the urban heat island effect. And I think FEMA could really take the lead in trying to make sure this happens. FEMA wouldn't have to pay for all of it, but they could help organize it and provide financial assistance to those communities that really don't have the money to do it themselves. Let's talk about some of the other legal tools that you discuss. So California and Oregon have set safety standards? That's right. At at the national level, uh, OSHA has not set safety standards for the occupational setting for extreme heat. They've been petitioned to do it. They have studies saying they ought to do it, but they haven't done it yet. They're now looking at it. California and Oregon have set up uh, heat standards, especially for outdoor workers. You know, farm workers, outdoor utility workers, all kinds of other people who have to work outside are exposed to heat, and it can be really dangerous for them. So Oregon and California have set up standards requiring breaks and shade and water and other ways to help reduce the the negative health effects of working outside in the heat. So you think that that's something that OSHA should do? Yes, OSHA should do that. They've been petitioned by some uh, some groups to do it, and it's something clearly within their authority, and it's something that they absolutely should undertake. You mentioned that Arizona has put some requirements on landlords. Yeah, almost everywhere, landlords are required to provide heat in the winter. It's part of what's called the warranty of habitability. Arizona has put that in the in the summer. That then it when when it's very hot, uh, landlords have to provide cooling. That's something that I think also should be expanded nationwide. We've seen in the last few months that places like Washington State and Oregon that are usually not very hot, and therefore a lot of people don't have air conditioning, they get oppressively hot. We need to protect um, the tenants in buildings, and and imposing this requirement on landlords is one way to do that. There's another simple solution. Low-income people could be given money to buy air conditioners. That's right. There are programs that have been around a long time to help low-income people pay for heating oil so that they don't freeze in the winter. A few states provide money to buy air conditioners, but a problem is that uh, a lot of poor people can't afford the the power to run the air conditioners. So in addition to helping them buy the air conditioners, they also need subsidies for the, the power bills to run the air conditioners. What do you do to try to get states and the federal government to work on these? I think that FEMA is the natural agency to organize a nationwide effort to do this. We've seen in the last few months these killer heat waves that have been hitting parts of the country that are not accustomed to it. I think that's increasing overall consciousness of the need to deal with heat waves, since they are, as I said, the most lethal impact of climate change in the United States. A lot more people die from heat waves than floods or hurricanes or tornadoes, and it deserves national attention like those other kinds of weather disasters have received for a long time. How has the Biden administration been doing on the environment? I think that Biden has put in place a remarkably strong team in the White House, at EPA, in the Interior Department, and and everywhere else. Uh, The message has clearly gone out uh, uh, that uh, the administration is working very hard on climate change. Uh, Everything that they could do by the stroke of a pen, they've pretty much done in terms of rescinding the executive orders from Trump that weakened environmental regulations. They're really working very hard. We'll see what happens in Congress, the negotiations that are going on right now about the infrastructure bill. 
there's a lot that Biden can do and is doing with his existing legal authority. There's a lot more that he could do if Congress were to add to that authority and provide the money. And we'll see in the days and weeks to come if that actually happens. Tell me what there is in the infrastructure bill that addresses climate change or the environment. One of the most important uh, proposals is the clean energy standard, a federal law that uh, a certain percentage and ultimately 100 percent of the electricity has to come from zero emission sources, which would be renewables and a little bit of remaining nuclear. Uh, That's one very important uh, issue. There's also uh, money in, in various versions of that for beefing up the electric transmission system, which is needed to take power generated by wind and solar to to where it's needed. Uh, There's some money for mass transit. There's money for improving water systems. Uh, So there's a lot of money that would help the climate situation in various versions of the bills. We don't know what will ultimately emerge. I've read that some environmental advocates are disappointed in Biden because they don't think the administration is moving fast enough on environment. Uh, Yeah, the Sunrise Movement and a number of other um, progressive organizations are complaining that Biden hasn't gone far enough. I think it's, uh, you know, he's getting a lot of pushback from the right. He's also getting pushback from the left. Um, And uh, Biden is making his judgments about how much he can push through in Congress. We'll see how it how it plays out. In Congress, is this a partisan issue? Oh, yes. Um, uh, climate change is one of the most partisan issues um, we've ever seen. The statistics show that. The current Republican Party has adopted as a matter of doctrine that they don't believe that human-caused climate change is happening, or if it is, that don't think the government should do anything about that. The Democrats are on exactly the opposite side. So that's one of the major problems we have. And with the Senate uh, split 50-50, it's very hard to get anything done. It almost seems absurd with the different problems we've been having with heat and cold and that people don't believe in climate change. Well, of course, it's not the only issue where it's absurd that people can't be convinced, vaccination being number one. Uh, But I think that the increased terrible climate change problems we've seen, the the floods and the hurricanes in the the U.S., the catastrophic flooding we're now seeing in Europe and China and parts of Africa, parts other parts of Asia, uh, they're all adding up. Um, There was a a magazine uh, cover the other day saying, no one is safe. It used to be thought that there were parts of the world that were completely immune from climate change. But we know that is no longer the case. The combination of heat heat and wildfires and flooding and everything else mean that there are climate-related dangers globally. And hopefully more people will wake up to that and take the decisive action that is needed to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are causing most of the climate change and take actions to prepare for the climate change that is coming, regardless of our best efforts. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Michael Gerard of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.